work in progress. I will always be a work in progress. I learn something new every day. That's what keeps it interesting. Nothing is ever the same day to day. It's never the same. Just put one foot in front of the other and you'll be just fine. You just need to like put your big girl pants on and, and walk on out there. Hello and welcome to the Theatre Art Life Podcast, sponsored by Harlequin Floors, world leader in floors, stage systems and studio equipment for the performing arts. The Theatre Art Life Podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Aguilera. And my name is Anna Robb. In this episode, Lauren Duffy Franzoso joins us to share her experiences as a rigger. Lauren, welcome to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about you and your work? Thank you so much for having me. So, uh, yes, my name is Lauren Duffy Franzoso. I have a BFA in uh, entertainment design technology. It's where I started with a concentration in stage management. So, uh, that's where my love was as a young adult. And I sort of got thrown into technical stage management is really what it started to be called as I was bringing myself up in stage management career. And then from there ended up in production management, which then led me into rigging and permanent install rigging as a permanent install project manager. And then as that was growing, so was ETCP. So we all decided to join ETCP to take our tests. So I am the 34th woman ever certified as a theater rigger. You know, and that's something that uh, I took for granted. Definitely uh, early on in my career, my uh, mentor at my first permanent install rigging company was one of the first sets of people, probably the first 30 people to ever take the test. So it didn't, I didn't understand the power that that had at the time. I just knew she had done it. And so therefore I wanted to do it. And that's the the way we were leading the company. But it's now to see probably a thousand, fifteen hundred people are probably maybe more than that. I'm saying that number like I know it that are certified. Uh, it's pretty substantial. It's definitely made a milestone in my life. So from my work in permanent install rigging, I was there for and I did that for about 10 years. And then things changed in my life. I became a mom. I wanted to be more stable and have a uh, a little bit more of a job that let me come home at five o'clock every day. So I had some friends who were at PRG, some people I had graduated college with. And then one day, the general, who is the general manager now, picked up the phone and said, there's this thing. And I think you could be good at it. And I think that it maybe fits the bill of what you've been talking about wanting to do. So why don't you come in and have a conversation? And so I did. And now I am the purchasing manager for PRG Scenic Technologies, both on the East Coast in New York and the West Coast in Las Vegas. Uh, and I've been doing that for about five years now. 
Amazing, amazing. That's and sort that's, of where I am now. That's, that's <laughs> you've done many careers in the one industry. It's many, fantastic. many. I mean, there was a lot of stage management. There was a lot of stage handing. There's been some events management. I've done some party events and things like that. You know, you just well round out yourself as you go through your years. But don't we all? <laughs> a work little bit. In, work in progress. That is my favorite saying. I am a work in progress. I will always be a work in progress. I learn something new every day. And what was it that you drove you into, like from the sort of stage management background into the rigging aspect of it? What was I, I know you said you were more of a technical stage manager, which I kind of identify as as well, really. Yes. And, and then particularly rigging, what was it about that that interested you? I very much enjoyed that. So I, I was an opera stage manager. That's where I sort of had my first niche is that I could read music. And so I got pushed that direction because uh, apparently that's a skill that is as an adult hard to obtain. Um, But if you had a childhood that was fostered in a musical background, which I had, it made it much easier. So in doing that, I I seem to gravitate towards the production end and the opera loves an obvious scene change, like nobody's business. They love an obvious scene change. And that coordination of how that uh, came to pass with both the scenery and the automation and the the performers and the musicians, like that seemed to come very easy to me. So out of that, I had bonded pretty hard to some scene shops and automation things. Uh, So when I traveled, I had been doing that in Boston at a company that no longer exists anymore called Opera Boston. Um, And when I exited that role and came back to New York, everyone sort of saw me more as someone who was going to go to a shop, like that that's that was the direction my career was taking. And in fact, I got asked as a favor to a professor to take a position that was a like an interim internship with a company that was managing Jersey Boys as it moved from La Jolla to New York. And in that, I met iWise, which is the company that I went to after. And we, I began to understand what rigging was. I knew it as part and parcel to what was moving my scenery, how that was moving, but I really understood what counterweight rigging was, how automated scenery was becoming the future. Uh, And I saw an opportunity to enter that company on the ground level that was really interesting to me. It felt like a step that wasn't so in over my head at that point, I joined iWise as an assistant project manager. And so they were very willing to train me uh, in what all the vocabulary meant and how it was implemented. And that was an immense step forward uh, and something that I really, I took it as a filler and the filler lasted 10 years. So uh but you, but moving forward, right, and going up in your career. So yes, <laughs> yes, so. something that I was like, I'm just going to wait until this other project goes commercial. I'm just going to take this job to fill in, and I would like health benefits, and I would like all of these like adult things that you do. You know, at 21, I thought that was that was the smart thing to do, uh, and then I found myself in a place where um, 
the, my curiosity was being piqued and I was constantly growing and learning and the industry was moving so fast that I was able to be part of the change as well as learning from other people's mistakes. You know, I never felt that we were, we were on the cutting edge, but I felt we were doing things in line with producing an industry that would become better because of it. Amazing. I, I'm going to start with the tech questions, but you said something that uh, made me think. You mentioned the difference between counterweight rigging and automated rigging. And Anna did uh, an interview with one LDI and they went on, uh, I was in theater consulting and they spoke about rigging as well. I had recently went to this theater that just opened and it was all counterweighted. And I was like, wow. <laughs> they still do them like this. <laughs> uh, can you speak a little bit to the difference between counterweighted rigging and automated rigging? And you said that everything was moving to automated and well, it really didn't, but I don't know what your thoughts are and advantages and disadvantages. So counterweight rigging is for lack of a, a, a finesse term, sort of the seesaw, you know, on one end, you have a load and a pipe and what you're putting on it. And on the other end, you have a carriage that rides between rails that is should be balanced to what's on the pipe. It's a very simple machine type of implementation. It has great potential to be an educational tool and to provide you with something that is flexible. So counterweight rigging, much of what exists for counterweight rigging will become the backbone for an automated rigging set. You know, the natural progression will go from manual counterweight rigging to counterweight assist to full on winches, like as you you move across uh, what your end user needs. So there was a point early on in my career that it was the industry is moving so hard into automated rigging that 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 was that was the way that we were going to provide the safest system out there was to make it automated so the machine was doing the thinking the machine was making the choices for you and as that became part of the industry uh, i think it really divided the sets of people um, where was it attainable financially for you? Certainly in the educational facilities, it, it's not always attainable. It, it, a machine is just far more expensive than a manual counterweight system. Also, you're looking at the infrastructure in a lot of the educational facilities. Specifically, I'm going to uh, speak in New York because I managed the Department of Education contract for all five boroughs for quite some time. That infrastructure was set into those schools, you know, in the early 40s and 50s, sometimes the 60s, maybe you were lucky enough to get something that was in the 80s. So you're looking at what the industry was like in the 40s and 50s and trying to, to bring that up to an automated standpoint. And there's just so much distance between that, that it's, it's almost unattainable. So you have to do that in baby steps. And the best way to do that is to just provide safer counterweight equipment and teach those who are in charge of those facilities, spaces, whatever we are labeling them as, uh, teach them how to do it safely. A counterweight system is not something that the average person uh, on the street can go in and operate without some sort of a background. And that was, that's where IWISE had really taken a standpoint in, 
in the five boroughs inside of the New York City schools to say, like, it's we want to teach you how to use what you have. I don't want to rip it all out and replace it all the time. I, I want you to know what you have, know the potential it has and move from there. But you can't go from, you know, a bicycle to a Land Rover in six months. We probably need to give you somewhere in between that's appropriate for your staff that you currently have and your students. But what I want to do is have it not fall from the sky. Well, that's it, isn't it? Like, I think the thing is that whether it's automated or, you know, counterweight, both of them require training and capability and knowledge. And, and whenever it comes to hanging things overhead, the, the, the stakes are huge, always huge, aren't they? Yes. And that is that portion of rigging I did not understand when I began my career. I didn't understand what that liability and the conscience that you would have on doing that as I began to be more focused on the end user and what we were doing, what we were selling them, what they wanted, how they were going to utilize that in the in the two-year plan and the five-year plan and the 10-year plan, I began to understand the pressures that you face as a rigger because it's it's your decision ultimately. You are hanging something over someone's head and ultimately you are responsible for the safety that uh, of the equipment. Of course, people operate it, but uh, on me personally, I felt a conscience on what I was able to give them and and have them feel confident in themselves before I left site. Correct me if I'm wrong, though, because I think from country to country, some rigor it's required if you work in the industry to have a certification. But I don't think yes. that's the case for America necessarily, right? Like you don't necessarily no. have to have it. Yeah. Which is uh, it's, interesting. It also... <laughs> Right. It becomes a it depends on who you are, who owns your facility, what dictates the uh, authority having jurisdiction over what you're doing. Um, Certainly, uh, like in a state like Nevada, they require, you know, management to have OSHA 30 and anyone who is just a worker on the site to have OSHA 10. Now, OSHA 10 and OSHA 30, according to OSHA, do not expire. But Clark County in the in that uh, is the authority over the city of Las Vegas says, no, that needs to be done. I think it's every five years, regardless of whether or not you do those things. Now in New York, uh, it changes often. When I was coming up in the industry, there was a New York City law that said you had to have local 52 scaffolding training. Now local 52 doesn't exist anymore or local law 52 doesn't exist anymore. So then it, it falls to OSHA. But it's not required for you to have OSHA training. It's not required for you to be ETCP trained, although much of the industry has looked to ETCP to be the, you know, the, the number one marker for those who have had experience and will continue to be educated. So that's part of your renewal in ETCP is you have to have continuing education credit. Um, so you're constantly aware of what's going on in the industry or what has been changed or is changing. But even in ETCP, we're, con- we're consistently looking at what the standards are at the ESTA standards, the ANSI standards and changing them almost like they'll, they get up for review. I think it's every six months there's a board meeting on some of those and then they go and 
review for I don't know how long, and then they get produced back to ANSI for for a revision. Can you just super quickly tell us what is OSHA and what is ANSI oh. and what's ETCP? <laughs> oh, uh, now you're going to put me on this. Let's start with ETCP. So uh, ETCP is Entertainment Certification Technicians Program. Someone's going to correct me on that, I'm sure. And that is a gathering of people through what used to be ESTA. I'm going to say all these things. Now I'm going to, you can correct all of this at once. Uh, it was a grouping of people through ESTA uh, that came together to say that they need, we wanted to have a basis of standard uh, of how you are trained to be a rigger. Uh, there are ETCP certified theater riggers, and then there are ETCP certified arena riggers. There's uh, different tests for both. Of course, the arena is is much more bridal-based, math-based, uh, things like that. And uh, at least when I took it years ago, uh, it was uh, the, the rigging for theater was far more counterweight-based the year I took it. I know that test changes yearly. OSHA is uh, a U.S.-based occupational safety and health administration. Something. There you go. See, uh, and they rule over workplace ergonomics, safety, uh, occupational everything. So OSHA is run nationally. Is it federal? Am I going to say it's federal? It is federal. Yes. Yeah. And there is a standard that is available for you to download and adhere to based on what you think your workplace falls underneath. What was the other question? ANSI. Oh, ANSI. God. American mm -hmm. National Standards Institute. Yes. I was going to say, I, I know I follow ANSI. I couldn't tell you very much about the ANSI standards other than the fact that ETCP and ESTA has partnered with them to come up with a standard that is available to all that request it. So you don't need to be a member of anything to request an ANSI standard, much like the certifications for steel or uh, standards for general construction. Uh, a lot of ANSI standards are there uh, as to how you put it together, how it's welded, how you take care of it, et cetera, et cetera. All right, let me, let me, I don't want to sound cocky. Let me try to explain it and you tell me if it sounds right. Sure. Uh, <laughs> so we have the government and the government uh, has two different entities, one that regulates health and safety, which would be OSHA, and then yeah. one that provides uh, national standards on how things should be built, constructed, fabricated, designed so they're safe for everybody. Yes. So one basically... Uh, oversees how people operate and the other how things are done and the quality those things have. Yes. And based on that, ESTA is like the entertainment independent agency that say, we want things to be safe as well. So we'll take this that the government provides and from what the government doesn't provide, we'll do our own certifications and regulations. And then we'll talk to ANSI and say, hey, can we make this a standard or do we do our own standard kind of thing? Yes, this, mostly because entertainment doesn't fall within anyone's wheelhouse or anyone's silo of influence. Uh, it was clear that 
there just weren't any rules governing that. And I mean, I guess the best public notice of that in in the New York area was, of course, the accidents that happened at Spider-Man. And it was very clear that no one had an idea of who was going to keep who safe and whose responsibility it was to upkeep that. And there was a struggle to find guidance. Not that ANSI Sanders or Estes Sanders came out of that, but that was probably the most publicly known place where it became very apparent that standards needed to be produced um, for us to have an industry that felt safe and was safe to everyone, including performers. We always come back to Spider-Man, don't we, Anna? Oh, my God. (laughs) This is kind of a perfect segue to talk about permanent install versus temporary install. And uh, yes, Ocean, yes, whatever. But what are the differences to you when you're doing a permanent install versus a temporary install? What's like you did mostly a a permanent install. What's all about it? I think... Uh, permanent install work lands yourself in a position where you are considered a, uh, by general construction terms, a finished trade. So someone who is coming in post the MEP work in a building and installing goods. My permanent install work uh, was mostly in big AIA contracts, so large either new construction or large renovation products, uh, projects, which were the majority of the time, there were many other trades before me. So finished trades are sort of treated not as the stepchildren, but you're so late in the process that there's, there's clearly key players who have already put themselves, uh, in, in their roles on site and you're then playing along with them. It is a interesting place to be, but with permanent install versus temporary install, uh, permanent install is about how it went in, how it can stay in, and how do you maintain it. Whereas temporary install is about how does it go in, how do you successfully run that for six weeks, eight months, a year, and then how do you take it back out? Like permanent install is not about relieving your footprint on the building and and leaving no trace. Whereas temporary install is very much about that. And also, I think that wouldn't you say that, and this is probably my question, when it comes to um, permanent install, you're definitely trying to, maybe even the choice of materials and equipment can be largely different because it's going in for the long term. Yes. As opposed to something that's going to come and go, right? Yes. Of course, you're looking at things, uh, duty cycles, the understanding of of what that, um, a perfect in part of this is as... As the world becomes more conscious of their carbon footprint, uh, the requests begin to happen with recycled materials. There are several projects that I worked on that are uh, LEED certified, so environmentally friendly. Uh, Specifically, there's a building in New York that was platinum LEED certified um, as the skyscraper was LEED certified and platinum status. There was a theater in the basement. And it was requested very early on, like, well, I don't understand why your your metals can't be recycled. And they're like, that's no, it's it, the our industry just didn't at that time do that. There wasn't enough testing 
to have been done to say, yes, I want the base angles and the cheek plates of my loft blocks to be recycled. I want the nylatron that my shivs are being made out of to be recycled. Uh, at that point, there had just not been enough testing. And therefore, our standpoint on that was safety first, recycled later. I promise you, I will use recycled pallets. I will put everything on trucks, you know, with the least amount of packaging, but I can't consciously say to you, I can use recycled material to hang something over someone's head. It's just not something that was being done. Um, now, there are certainly products out there that have, exactly, there are certain products out there that have been tested that do have a recycled content that is, you know, acceptable not only on the manufacturing standpoint, but on the long-term duty cycle. 10 years ago, that was not the case. There just wasn't enough out there. And those products that were out there, riggers were finding that they were, uh, they weren't withstanding themselves. So they'd be fine in, you know, a six month light duty thing. But if you wanted to have a loft block up for five years, no one was willing to put their hands on that. Hmm. Do you get a lot more about this recycling materials requests nowadays? Is that something that's more prevalent in the uh, conversations in the industry? I would say on the commercial shop side, not so much. Certainly in the permanent install rigging, that has become much more uh, a standard question and a response because lots of buildings want this LEED certification. We're all working towards making our footprints smaller you know, within, within the world globally. That needs to happen. Um, and responsibility of those manufacturing those parts are are taking the time and the energy to make that testing happen. I would say I foresee that being a huge push in the industry in the next 10 years. You're going to see a lot more of that as we move towards electric cars and things like this. You're going to you're going to start seeing manufacturing move towards that because it's a it's it's a need their end user is asking for it it's a need that needs to be met and now a moment for our sponsor the theater art life podcast is proud to be sponsored by harlequin harlequin is the world leader in floors stage systems and studio equipment for the performing arts established in the uk over 40 years ago harlequin is the preferred performance floor for the world's most prestigious dance and performing arts companies theaters and schools from the Royal Opera House to the Bolshoi Theatre, the New York City Ballet to the Royal New Zealand Ballet. Harlequin's experience and reputation are founded on the development, manufacture and supply of a range of high-quality sprung and vinyl floors specifically designed for dance and the performing arts. Backed by an engineering team and independent research, Harlequin also designs, builds and refurbishes stages working with stage engineers and theatre consultants in leading venues across the world. Harlequin is the global leader in its field with offices in Europe, the Americas, and Asia Pacific. Find out more at harlequinfloors.com, H-A-R-L-E-Q-U-I-N floors.com. So let's transition a little bit now to your role in a scene shop. And, and what was that transition like going from being a rigger into a, working in a commercial scene shop? <laughs> it was uh, huge. I think the largest change for me was going from the permanent install world where I was part of a general contracting project. You know, no one builds a skyscraper in six weeks. That is a long-term project. Sometimes you're looking at like the far end of that being 36 months. And as a finished trade, 
you're seeing action in the first four months and then it's going to be quiet for 10 months and then you're going to go like bang gangbusters the rest of the time. That is not the way in a commercial scene shop. Let me just tell you, that was like light. It was, it was hard. It was hard. I, I knew the pace at which Broadway worked. Of course, we were, my other company was, the other half was Broadway. So I had seen it. I had understood it. I certainly had friends. Um, even my husband at that point was working in a commercial scene shop. So I knew that the pace would be different. I did not expect it to be what it was. I went from permanent install rigging to PRG Scenic Technologies, which happens to be a pretty high up on, on the list of commercial scene shops. We're very busy. We take on a lot of work. What I didn't understand was the quantity of work and the small amount of time you have to do it. So our Broadway show is tremendous. You know, if you're looking at at a large show with a deck and scenery and things like that, you know, you're looking at a million dollars, million dollars plus, but that all gets accomplished in six weeks, maybe at best eight weeks. That is a ton of material and time to be pushing through the machine. And it, it has a really finite cadence to how it gets accomplished. Um, and if you are offbeat it shows and it it will it can lead you down a really rough road. So uh, I needed to get on board with that very quickly and be able to sustain that. You know, that was something also the stamina that you need to just continue to persevere and get through to the other side and start it all over again the next day, you know, um, was amazing to me and certainly something that still interests me in in the commercial scene shop is is that constant push and pull and and how that machine really works. How would you describe the life of a Broadway project through a commercial scene shop? Of course it starts from the bidding and the estimating phase, uh, then there's negotiations on the contract, uh, and then it goes to our technical design and engineering and they're putting real concept to renderings and designer drawings. Um, they're going to bring it to reality, not only based on what the materials can be, but also on, on what the shop can accomplish. And then from there, they're reviewing it with those people who are in the shop and the senior levels. And then that's getting released to the floor. So at the time that that drawing is released to the floor, that is the start on materials to enter the building. So I would say pre-COVID, Uh, is is a term that we love to use in the scene shop right now. Pre-COVID, you know, it was not uncommon to have all materials for a Broadway show show up in three days. Right now, that's not the case. Uh, it's not the case in any manufacturing across the world. There's Absolutely. Just, materials are just, <laughs> are just uh, not there, not in stock, not being produced, the quantities that we are used to doing it. Uh, so there's a different a different cadence now during COVID, I don't even know what we're going to call this time. Is it, is it COVID? Is it post COVID? It's whatever, whatever we are right now is, uh, you know, uh, effectually uh, a trickle down from what happened when the world stopped for um, the immense amount of time that it did. So once, once the materials are in the building, then you have four different departments going at their 
portions of the job in tandem. We're all running towards the same finish line. And, you know, I've, I've watched our shop turn out a deck in seven days. It's an amazing uh, symphony of people to do that, to have it outdone and then hand it off to the next portion of the shop, you know, to the art department or to automation or whatever it needs to be, and then load it out on trucks. It's a very short amount of time for the immense amount of physical goods that enter and exit that that building on any day. I kind of feel like I want to ask for a time lapse of the whole process. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh, like yeah. the whole, of all it getting built and then it getting painted and then it getting packed up and then it going to the, the theatre because it, it sounds epic, really. Uh, it can be, you know, when we very recently did a project where it was a very fast turnaround and it was for a commercial concert portion and it, it literally materialized itself in like three and a half weeks three and a half weeks from this thing on this piece of paper that shows you this water feature to, you know, a 30 by 20 water feature with artists on it that needs to leave the building. It's not always a smooth ride. We aren't always happy about what we, what we're doing in the time that we're doing it. But there is one thing that we are, and I can say this because I feel like we we just went through a, an after action report on something. We're always very proud of what we put out. PRG Scenic Technologies uh, puts out a product that they are proud of. We may moan about it in the process, but we are always proud of what goes out on those trucks. We do know that we do a good job. We are one of the best at what we do. Uh, and we take pride in that. Um, but the time lapse is, is I, I will bring that up because I think it's, we certainly have time lapses of the installs. Like here, this is how we loaded in Frozen into this theater. And you can see the whole time lapse of how that happens. But to see the, the little anthill of people in that building it would be great. Espe- especially when you're talking about big stuff, like Broadway shows are one thing. When we move into different wheelhouses that we have, you can see giant steel and giant for for the Broadway industry is, you know, anything over eight by eight. It's heavy steel. It's heavy steel. It requires a gantry. It's a lot. Of, but we have rolled pieces. We have drums that are as big as your body. Like that all happens in the same building as carving an elephant out of foam. You know, <laughs> so uh, that's what keeps it interesting. Nothing is ever the same day to day. It's never the same. We pride ourselves on custom things. Uh, I think all of entertainment really probably prides themselves on on not necessarily reinventing the wheel, but making the wheel yours every time you do it. And that's certainly where we feel like we are. How do you feel like, I feel like you're very proud of every step on your career and that's pretty cool. Are there any more significant moments that you felt like were key in this transitions or that gave you more or that you wish were different? Uh, I think you're right. I am very proud of where I came from, uh, the steps that I took. I would never want to change how I got here. Uh, it's all been educational and uh, definitely shaped me into who I am. I think if if anything else, in retrospect, you always want it to be a little bit easier. And I think that drives me in any of my roles to provide leadership for those who are coming up below me to do it better, to do it easier. 
I already went through the hard road. I don't want you to do that too. Uh, If I can make it so that you can learn from the lessons I've already learned, let me do that. You know, whether that is in purchasing or that's as a rigor, if that is just, I did some stupid stuff. Let me make sure that you know how stupid it was and how uh, incredibly fortunate I was not to have caused myself harm or caused anyone else harm. You know, those are those are difficult lessons to learn. And if I can stop someone else from the pain of having to learn those, uh, I feel like that's well worth it. Definitely well worth it. I don't know when I look towards the future, I don't know what that looks like. I know that I'm still curious and I'm still interested in what I'm doing now. Um, I like being part of a team. That is something I've definitely thrived on here is I I like being involved. I got interested in theater at a young age because I like the magic. I like the suspension of disbelief and creating that for other people to be involved in was very important to me. Uh, And it seemed that that is where I could have an effect. So being in a commercial scene shop definitely allows me to feel like I'm part of the magic, but not actually have to own any of it. <laughs> so I get to be on the backside and that, that feels good. That, that, uh, the hiding feels pretty decent. <laughs> so what's one of the favorite things about your job? The fact that I feel like I get an education in things that I never thought about before. Of course, I have a BFA in entertainment design. I spent four years, you know, being taught or whatever in a conservatory. So I I felt like, oh, well, I should definitely know all these things. But uh, every day I have another learning opportunity. And I'm grateful for those people, not only within the organization, but my vendors, my clients that come to me and who are willing to teach. I have learned so very much about chemical composition and what it means to put foam together. And specifically, if you got to talk to me about plastics, I know so much about polycarbonate. I don't even like pages upon pages, I could regurgitate to you about like flame resistance and this and that and the other thing. And I, I like that. I like constantly learning and having the opportunity to, to gain more information. It's like, a bad game of Jeopardy. I have a lot of information. It's probably useless to most people, but I I like it very much. No, it should make you a very good craft mom. That's what it should be. (laughs) I'm more like an Amazon mom, not so much a Pinterest mom. I love it. What would you tell the 15-year-old you that should know when I was still starting on dream, to dream on the stage management things, uh, like what would be an advice you would give to yourself when you were 15, 20 years old? It may be the same piece of advice I give my 38-year-old self, uh, which is that my self-doubt is always the loudest voice in the room, that I will be hardest on myself, harder than anyone else can be on me. So if I could just quiet that down and, and be comfortable in my fear, that anything is possible, that really I am holding myself back. Uh, I think if we're talking about 15-year-old self, sidebar, 15-year-old self didn't want to be in the arts because I didn't think I could make a career out of it. 
that I didn't think I could support myself as an adult in the arts. So 15-year-old self said, you need to pick an, uh, an industry and a career that seems more stable. And that was marine biology. Uh, and uh, I went to school for that for a year. I, I definitely uh, went down that pathway, but found myself gravitating towards the theater, which is where I felt most comfortable. And I realized if I tried really hard, I probably could be good at this. And that there was a way to make money and that people in, like clearly did this for a living um, and that I needed to find those people and, and be part of their, their group, their tribe. So it's really interesting that you say that. And I kind of want to dig into that just a little bit, if you don't yeah. mind. I think what perpetuates self-doubt, especially in women, because it's something that's come up for a lot of conversations and Anna and I talk about us women need to talk more, but in, in terms of that's a common theme and I, I wonder what's in our our childhood that perpetuates that belief because other people don't have that right and but it's a common it thing it's so for very our... clear to me that other people do not have that we as women are standing looking at a goal and we step back to evaluate how to get there whereas there could be a man standing next to us that just sees that target and runs towards it like with no plan whatsoever um, and I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what that, what breeds that in a person, but I do know that I am, I am most affected by that, that I, I need to feel like I have a plan. I need to step back and assess things. Whereas like I see other people and they're just moving towards it. And then, and then I get angry, you know, like, why couldn't I just do that? Why like, shut up, stop thinking you're overthinking, just just do it. Um, you're more than confident. I mean, I remember the first time walking out on a truss, doing the same thing, psyching myself out, being like, you can't do this. Why could you do this? Like that guy over there, he's doing it. He's in a harness. Why can't you? Do and, and then I just had to be like, stop, stop. Just put one foot in front of the other and you'll be just fine. You just need to like put your big girl pants on and, and walk on out there. I don't know. It's uh, I I wish I could look I could teach it out of people. I certainly wish to teach it out of my daughter who's 7. But even even at 7, I I see it in her that she will she reserves herself whereas her 4-year-old brother will not. Yeah, I think there's something quite in, there's there there is a quite innate nature I think for and maybe I'm completely wrong because I'm not a psychologist nor a scientist on this sort of stuff but the tendency is there there is a more cautious nature but i'm trying as a parent trying to mitigate that as much as possible by instilling a certain confidence because i think there's certain biases that we have or we had when we were growing up that we were really unconscious of right and that inadvertently gets passed on to us unconsciously and then i'm always trying to ask myself am i am i treating them equally but and you've got a, a daughter and a son as well am i treating them equally with that attitude and encouragement and and honestly, I mean, my daughter is far more fearless than I was at her age, which is great and scary at the same time. <laughs> like, but yeah, you, so I, I see that, that as well. You know that that, that um, showing thing. them. I think this is maybe uh, a parenting thing versus a rigging thing or an entertainment thing. But like uh, modeling that failure is acceptable. Uh, I think that's a problem I have. Is failure to me seems so unacceptable and so scary that it it will take me out of the game 
whereas I would like to model for my children and those, you know, uh, colleagues or, or interns or whoever who are, who are looking to me that failure is, is not actually losing ground. Failure can be just as important and just as much as a teaching lesson that you don't have to feel bad. Your uh, innate emotion connected to the failure doesn't have to be negative. It can be positive. But that too is a very enlightened, mature thing. And I am still working towards that. Uh, so it's it's something that I, I wish to to get better at as I move forward. Anna, your thoughts? Oh my word! I, I the the, <laughs> the one thing that it it's uh, crossing my mind, but I think I don't know if it's a a here discussion. It might be a completely different podcast. Is I wonder if you guys were put in a situation, or how many, or what kind of situation, if you were, uh, where you were made felt less or insecure that had triggered that, whether it was as children or in the entertainment. Uh, so that that guessing of ourselves or yourselves, because uh, I'm asking you, not because I haven't gone through that, <laughs> that that just triggers and makes that more prevalent. I think for me, as you look at at who you've worked with uh, along your career, the female components of my career are are huge and milestones and and very important for me. But as I look at who has been there the majority of those persons are are male. And so it's sometimes hard to compare yourself. As a rigger, you do it a lot physically because my arms aren't as strong as his arms are. I'm not as physically big. Like that's that's a big thing in a grid. You know, your feet are just not physically big. So you're, you become uneasy about where to put your feet in the grid wells and things like that. Like those are the first sort of tangible fears that I think you start to have those opportunities for you to compare yourself become greater and greater. Uh, and in my vision, so many of those comparisons happen between male and female in, in my personal career. Mm. I think for me, if I, and I haven't thought too much about it, but off the cuff, you know, growing up, up until I was, say, 18 or 19, I didn't really have any women leadership people in my life that I experienced. And and what I mean by that is my parents were kind of very sort of traditional patriarchal marriage. My mum stayed at home to look after us and dad went to work. And obviously mothers are leaders in the different ways, but not in the work environment, right? So, and then around that, in that community, I don't recall anybody that I can be like, there's a person that was in charge of stuff. Like, and so I don't think I had a lot of role models. So when I went out into the industry, I didn't know what female leadership looked like. And I didn't know if I had a place there also to add to that that I think that the Australian Australia generally is still a very sexist society I think they think that they're progressive but when I I have never been treated more with inequity than I have in Australia and I've worked everywhere I've worked all around the world and I don't think I've ever been and maybe it's because I was younger when I was working in Australia but I was certainly in certain lots of many situations where I was treated if I look back on it now and somebody treated me like that today, I mean, hell, all hell would break loose. Like it would be 
it'll be on. But um, <laughs> like I was young and I was a kid and I took it. So I think that combination of not having a lot of female leadership in my life growing up um, in terms of work responsibilities and leadership in that sense, women leadership in other ways, parenting and motherhood, yes. And then secondly, not being treated particularly well in the first few years of my career as a female with those things that you lean to, Lauren, just, you know, basic physical inequities and capabilities and um, that sort of thing that doesn't necessarily mean you're less than because you can bring other things to the job, but you don't realise that for a while, right? You know, when I actually grew into myself and I realised actually my empathy for other people and my the, the feminine sides of me makes me a better manager than than if I did not use those aspects of my personality. And and when I lent into that, I got better at my job. So that's my thoughts. <laughs> Do you feel like those comparisons are, or in your experience, were those comparisons done by yourself and on kind of more unconscious level or were they out and outspoken and people would tell you, here, you're different and you, like, you Both. should be. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's certainly, uh, I'm sure we all feel like this, but early on in my career, it was, it was very clear that I was different. Being a woman in general construction is, is a very odd man out, regardless of the fact that you're wearing the same boots and the same hard hat as everybody else. It's, it's very clear that one of these things is not like the other. Um, <laughs> and um, for better or worse, in New York City, tradesmen are very vocal about that you find yourself on a site where there doesn't exist a facility for you to use the bathroom because 99.5 percent of the working staff in the building is using a porta john which is fine you know but they're like the ones where you like go up that that circular weird staircase and you pee in a hole like that's not gonna work for me guys i don't know what to tell you but it's just not gonna work there is a uh, a very affronted feeling that you get. And especially if you are young, it is even worse because you're getting it as an ageist and you're getting it as a male versus female. I was just saying, having said that, for me, I feel like some of the biggest advocates for me have been men and some of the most supportive people that helped me in my career have been men that were 100% supportive and was like, Anna, don't lift that case. I'm go I've got it for you. And not in a way that it was condescending, but more of you go do that because you're better at that than me and I'll do this for you kind of thing. And when you've got somebody in your wheelhouse advocating for you in that way, I mean, it changes everything. And I think one of my uh, he's, a, he's passed away, unfortunately, you know, one of my big mentors early on was a guy named Ian Bowie. And he'd always say to me, Anna, women can do anything. They're so good. They can do anything. And to hear that when you're like 22 years old, I mean, it just fills you up. And I don't know actually where I'd be if I didn't have somebody like that or some of those people early in my life. So I, I think we can sit there and rate it on negativity, negativity but you, know, you probably have that same experience too, Lauren. There's people probably there that just lift you up and make you sore because they make you 110%. feel 110%. Exactly. And when they're willing to not, only, like, not take you aside and teach you something, but teach you something in front of the group where they're they are saying you are important to me your education is important to me i want to elevate you is huge uh and sometimes 
I don't even think it was being done with a conscious effort. It was being done as I see you as an equal. I want to to teach you how to do this. I want you to see how this is run. I like it was not done with the purpose of showing other people. It was done specifically in personal interest to me. How beautiful is that when you see each other? Yeah, it's a it's an amazing set of standards to to live up to and expect um but i it also begets a tremendous amount of just understanding within a group or within the the just the transparency of other people watching it happen i can tell you that that there were there are certain times when site supers would look at me with nothing but contempt because i was a girl and i was young and i clearly couldn't know anything But we would have a conversation, a lead installer and myself would have a conversation in front of said super. And then he'd go, oh, but you really do know what you're talking about. Or the theater consultant would come in and we would have a conversation like, this doesn't work. I want to do it this way, not only because it's easier to install, but because it will be easier for the end user to maintain this piece of equipment. If I rotate this, if I change how this is mounting, if I put the encoder on the other side so your hand can reach it, my hand can reach it. I'm tiny. I get it. I have kid fingers, but you have big man paws. So I would like to put it over here so it's easier for you. Oh, oh, wait a second. You're making my life easier. No, I am. That's my job. I want to make your life easier. I want you to enjoy what you are getting in the end. You know, this is not, I'm not trying to to be hard. It's all for the greater good. Yeah, I, you know, you just said something, Lauren, that I think is really important. And, and you know, And I used to say this all the time, and and I and again I'm, I'm the one the anti-sexist person, or whatever. But a man can walk in the room, and trust is automatically assumed until proved otherwise. A woman walks in the room, and you automatically have to prove yourself for them to believe in you, what your capability is, and that gets really tiring. <laughs> It is exhausting, and I, every I don't day. Think, I, I'm not. I'm not really in that place anymore because, you know, I think once you hit your 40s, you like, you don't give an F and, and you go in and you do it whether people think about it or not. Like, I, but early on in my career, that's what I always felt. I'd have to walk in the room and there was an automatic distrust until I proved otherwise. And then whether that be a week, a day or two days or a month, it would be that period of uncomfortability where you're sitting there trying to prove yourself all the time until they're like, oh, yeah, she knows what she's doing, right? I would say that, you know, having a rigging license or having anything like a, it, it sounds stupid, a card to flash that says, I actually, someone says that I know what I'm doing. <laughs> they gave me this thing that says that I know what I'm doing. You know, uh, in the early years was, was in completely uh, necessary. And sometimes it was, I remember walking on a job site once rigging in New York city falls under um, 580 iron workers. So these are the guys who are, you know, building the framing for, for the building and bridges and things like that. They're, they can be gruff guys. I think I, in my 10 years, met two women, two women in 10 years who were 580 iron workers. Most I totally, I totally want to know the statistics in the reading world of women versus big dudes. Right. And I remember one time getting on site and, and the, the, the guys who were doing the HVAC were just like, just being assholes about where to put something and, and like why it couldn't be where it was. I was like, cause there's supposed to be these blocks and we can, I could run a cable through your HVAC, but you're going to have a real problem with it. 
Um, and the iron workers said to me, uh, can you come over here to the job box? And I was like, fine, what's up? Like your paycheck's wrong. What are we going to have a fight about? Like I'm gearing up for like real anxiousness. And the guy who was the, the foreman goes to me, I have something in my toolbox for you. Okay. I go over and he like takes my hard hat and he rubs it against the concrete. So it's like scuffed up on one side and he opens his toolbox and he rips out this 580 sticker and he throws it on my hard hat. And he goes, that, that just got you five years worth of respect. Now go over there and talk to them about it. Cause now you're 580 cause I'm 580. So we're in this together. I was like, Oh, okay. That's how the dynamic here works. And he was like, that's exactly how it works. Get dirty, put a sticker on your hard hat, and everything's going to be fine. That's funny. That's a great story. <laughs> it is. It's it's nice and sad at the same time. Right? But uh, like I said, I think there were two ladies in 10 years. Most of the 580 people I was working with came out of the hall, and, and they were all guys. All guys. All right, so I'm going to ask the second part of the question. I think it's been answered, but I don't know. So I'm still going to answer or ask it because you're to answer. What is the thing you'd change or one thing, not the thing, but one thing you'd change in the industry or in your job? One thing that I would change in the industry uh, is representation. I would like to see more persons like me, if that means a person who is a parent, a person who is a woman, uh, a person who is educated in an art background, who is in executive management, I think representation to me matters. Yes. Anything that I would change about my job, uh, my current position, uh, I would change so pipe dream. I would change the way the world is in manufacturing and and raw materials right now because uh, it just it it is exhausting to fight the fight that it it doesn't exist and how to change what you've used for your entire career uh for a product into something else because that's what you need to do for now maybe we'll run into new cool materials i mean uh plastics is there man that is the one thing that i have learned face shields to you know light boxes there's there's a whole lot to be learned in plastics that's been really fantastic if people wanted to further this conversation talk to you uh they have questions or pipe dreams the best way to reach me is probably linkedin i exist on linkedin as lauren duffy i don't know if i have a hyphen i can probably put the hyphen in there um Many years, I was just stuffy, so uh, I've only recently become hyphenated because I had to. That's probably the easiest way, or you can always find me on the PRG website and uh, lfrancoso at prg.com and reach out to me there. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Lauren. Awesome discussion. Thank you guys so much for having me and for being interested in, in tiny me and what I have done in the industry in my career. Theater at Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only $38 US dollars per year. 
you can have unlimited access to our daily published articles, including entertainment news and the writings of active industry professionals, ensuring that you are always up to date on the global happenings in the world of entertainment. Become a part of the international entertainment community and join us now at www.theaterartlife.com.